Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm chatting with Professor David Storey, who is a longtime member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and who I hope needs no further introduction to the Australian anesthesia community. Before we go into more details about Professor Storey, I want to thank him immensely for chatting with me. The idea for this podcast has been a long time in the making. Back in 2018, I gave a presentation at a conference based on a resource document that I was involved with writing. The purpose of the document was to support trainees who had not passed their specialist medical exams. At the time, and I suspect it's still the case, there was a paucity of literature and so I spoke to many people who have had multiple exam attempts. So the first thing I want to say is that this occurs far more commonly than you might think. You might be surprised to find out who amongst us have had this experience. In talking with all these people, I found that there were some common themes for what had worked and how they found strength during this challenging time, and I'll share these with you at the end of the episode. So in this episode, Professor Story and I are discussing what it was like when he sat the primary exam and didn't pass. Not once, but twice. Again, thank you, Dave, for letting me share your story. I'm reluctant to say that he failed because, as you'll hear, and many of you know already, he is hardly a failure in the world of Australian anaesthesia. All right, let's get into it. Thank you for joining me this morning and also congratulations on becoming Vice President of the Australian New Zealand College of Anaesthetists. Yeah, thanks, Susie. I know I wanted to talk about exams with you. But I really want to first of all go through your very impressive email signature. If we go for each one, so the MBBS is with honours is from Monash and if you get above a certain mark, you get honours. I definitely wasn't top 10 or anything like that. And then I have a Bachelor of Medical Science, which is like an honours year added to the first three years of medicine. So I did three years of medicine, then did an honours in high altitude physiology. I'm very interested in rock climbing and mountaineering and just the opportunity arose to study the effects of low oxygen and exercise around the area of acute mountain sickness. And you got an honours in that as well? In reality, if I were a science student, I'd, I'd have a science degree with honours. Yep. But it was really sort of, if you like, the mark I got for my BMED Sci. So there was that. And then I've got my MD, which is my doctorate in acid-base disorders, particularly focusing on the Stewart approach to acid-base. And then obviously FANSCA and MAICD, which is a member of the Australian Institute Mm. of Company Directors. And you're currently Chair of Anesthesia and Head of the University Department of Critical Care at the University of Melbourne. Yeah, so I was the inaugural Chair of Anesthesia, which if you like means the most senior professor in anesthesia at the University of Melbourne. And that was actually a new position when it was started in 2012. I initially wasn't going to apply, but it was actually clear that they wanted someone who could network across the hospitals. And I had previously chaired and been a long-term member of the clinical trials network, so I was used to that kind of work. And so that's what we've set up. My chair covers about 15 hospitals. And so, if you like, mine was a new approach, which I think has been effective in working across and trying to break down some of the silo walls. So when I started, there was basically just me and an office. And then a year later, I got a manager, Anna Parker, who's still with us now. And over time, we evolved into a a centre when I was able to entice Ronaldo Belomo to come to the University of Melbourne. So we had a fair bit of oomph in the ICU side of things. 
Then emergency medicine came on board, particularly through George Breitberg and Jonathan Knott. And so we then had a centre that was operating. And at that point, we're actually in the Department of Medicine. And so we put forward an argument about becoming a department. And that's what happened. We had a divorce from medicine and became a department of critical care. So we're one of the few in the world that cover all three disciplines of anesthesia, intensive care medicine, emergency medicine. Guy Ludbrook has a group in Adelaide, which is related, but most places don't have all three disciplines. And so I then had another job interview to become head of department. So that's how I became head of department. Ah, okay. So well done. And congratulations also on being the inaugural head of department, on being the inaugural chair of anesthesia. And I mentioned also at the start, vice president of ANSCA. So again, Mm. congratulations on that. You're also the ANSCA Douglas Joseph professor. There are these professor roles that come up every two years. And so as a Douglas Joseph professor, I'll be playing a fairly major role in the ANSCA ASM next year in Sydney. So that also involved me putting up a research project. And so I've used the money to employ a research assistant. And the question we're asking is around acid base and the evidence as to whether acid base problems associated with unmeasured iron, such as those that you see in sepsis, associated with worse outcomes. Fantastic. Oh, well, we're looking forward to that. Looking forward to being in Sydney, crossing fingers immensely. Yeah, absolutely. But I wanted to come back and I really want to thank you for bravely coming forward. So I want to go back, if that's okay, back to that time. Yep. It was your first part exam. Yep. And were you expecting the result that you got? I th- There's a one added bit of history was that after I did my BMED sign high altitude physiology, I, for various means, met up with John West of West Respiratory Physiology and wound up spending some time in his lab and a co-author of two papers from that lab. So wow. I felt myself to be a clever physiologist, but probably not adequately recognizing that it was a very narrow area. And I think I overestimated my abilities for the exams. In fact, I've got no doubt. The other thing that came into it was that I really lost track of really having a study group. And I didn't at the time recognize the importance of having a study group. Mm-hmm. So overestimating my own abilities, not having study buddies. And then that probably was aggravated by, I have a tendency to think very broadly and sometimes not in a particularly focused way. And so when I first failed, my knowledge was grossly inadequate and I failed the writtens. The second time I passed the writtens but failed the vivas. And when I look back at that time, it's amazing how clearly you can remember these things, you know, more mm. than 30 years ago, that mm. what really made a difference was when someone helped me. And that person is a guy called Bill Shearer, who's a senior member of our college and my boss at Dandenong. And Bill really helped me think about how to structure my answers. And forevermore, I've realized for me as an individual, I need that discipline of having my thoughts structured. It doesn't come to me naturally. I can think in creative ways in terms of science. I'm not an artistic person, but I'm a creative thinker in science. And that doesn't work particularly well for exams. Bill taught me how to really structure my thinking and my answers. And in fact, by the time I sat the third time, about halfway through the physiology exam, they suggested, so what do you want to talk about? And my brain said, not renal, not renal, not renal. <laughs> and so I said, oh, how about we talk about high altitude physiology? <laughs> <laughs> and so I got to talk about something I probably know more about than most people. So mm. that worked very nicely. But to this day, I'm still not great at exams. Putting in the work, putting in the effort, structuring yourself, bit of self-discipline. And on reflection, and someone else 
I was talking to recently made the comment that passing the exam is a lot easier if you've got a very supportive partner. And I have no doubt that my wife made it a massive difference to me passing because she continues yeah. to be very supportive. I read a book recently that touched on that and they talked about the two types of support, that there's the overt support mm. where your partner is constantly reminding you about all the things they're doing mm. for you and the silent support where they're just supporting you in the background and they just get on and help you organise your life and do things around you without having to make a point of it. Mm. And that second type of support is actually far better correlated with success. Yeah, very much agree with that. But I, I want to go back because when I was preparing the resource document, I talked to a number of people who hadn't got the results that they were expecting. And at the time, there was also a paucity of anything in the literature about not making it through medical exams. And there were some common things that came out in what people were telling me. So the first thing was the immense shock of it. They, they didn't expect it to affect them as much. And uh, in the literature, I've heard, be prepared to feel like you're going through the stages of grief, that there can be anger, denial, reasoning. And then it's finally once you start getting acceptance that you're able to move forward. Do you relate to any of those comments? Mm, it's interesting. I was just thinking about when I failed the Viva, I met my wife in the city because in those days I used to be at the College of Surgeons. And she said she still remembers the look on my face as I came down the escalator. And she just knew what had happened. It's hard to remember the emotions. I really don't think I went through that grief as much as just thinking, Oh, right. Okay. Back to the lifestyle. It's been two years of your life in an exam lifestyle where every free moment is spent studying. And I think that was the hard bit. There wasn't really grief, anger, or anything else. I think in part because I could look back and say, I didn't do things the right way. So I didn't feel like I was a victim of anything. I didn't feel I was unfairly treated. I felt that I had failed to perform as required. And I failed to reach the standard that our college expects of us. And I just had to crack on and deal with it. Mm. But I can easily understand, particularly if you have high expectations, if you think about the, the junior trainees, they've done incredibly well at school, they've done well at medical school, they've come out, they've shone as residents, and then they fail something for the first time in their life. And it's not just a small something, it's a really big something. Mm. It really is, you know, you think I want to be an anaesthetist, I definitely want to do this and I've got this exam and I'm confident I'm going to pass and then they don't pass. Exactly. And I think that's the really hard bit. I came through in the days when I wasn't a particularly spectacular school student and I wasn't a particularly spectacular medical student. Well, funnily enough, I actually eloped in Canada the year I was over in West Lab between fourth year and fifth year. And so I actually had a much more stable fifth year and finally I was married, we had a place, you know, had this incredibly supportive partner, and that actually probably made a big difference how I did in medical school as well. Because mm. I was going to ask, was this the first exam that you'd ever failed? Oh, look, I barely got through year eight maths. Okay. Again, just because I was disorganised. I really need others around me to, I think, keep me organised is probably the way to put it. I mean, I work very closely with the manager of our department, and she keeps me on the straight and narrow not in a bossy way, but when I look back, I've always been that way. I really do need some sort of external force to help me organise my thinking. Well, speaking of external forces, that's one of the other things that I came up with was be prepared to seek help, mm. even professional help. Did that ever cross your mind when you were facing your subsequent exam attempts? All I can think about that time is just that feeling of needing to crack on and just sort myself out, not feeling like a victim, but I could easily see how people could become very anxious and stressed. And I think going back to the aspects of having a partner, and I think if I'd been single, even living with my parents, I think it would have been a lot harder. 
Mm. And I may have felt things like depression, anxiety, because I didn't have anyone. I had someone really close to me I could talk to about it. That's good. And then in terms of the planning, after the first attempt, you went straight back in for the next sitting? So I sat first time in first year. So that was really super early. And that's why my knowledge base was just terrible. And then the second sitting in first year, where I was probably a lot more prepared, but really just didn't have the structure. And then I passed in the second sitting in second year. One of the things we did do was we went away for a week up to the Northern Territory, which was actually a great circuit breaker, just to sort of relax. I'd done a heap of study, worked really hard. And I remember thinking, right, if if this doesn't come off, I'm going to have to think about a different career. But by then, I'd actually done enough work and had organized enough thinking that I was able to pass relatively easily, I think. I want to follow up. That's good. I'm glad you passed, obviously. (laughs) After all, we might be in different situations today. I wanted to come back to what you just mentioned about considering another career. Hmm. Did that ever seriously cross your mind? Not seriously. I can remember sitting in a campground in the Northern Territory having this thought. And in those days, the option B for many people was emergency medicine, which was dramatically different from how it is now in terms of popularity and everything else. And I don't think I'd actually worked out the fact that emergency medicine actually had a first part as well that needed to be passed. But then that was the other thing really in my mind because I wasn't interested in being a physician. I wasn't interested in being a surgeon. I like being in a room full of people. And the idea of sitting in an office on my own, even if the patient's coming in, is not my idea of a good time. I don't know if I honestly thought about it. I think I felt that if I didn't pass this time, I would have then been looking at those days that are non-accredited jobs. I'd be looking at one of those. I hadn't really thought about it too much, but I also knew that I had done a lot of work. It was almost like emotionally preparing myself for the possibility of failing, but in reality, knowing that I had a pretty good chance at that point. You've made two really good points from what I've heard from talking with people is having someone who's been a really good coach has just been completely invaluable. And that thought of not actually contemplating having another career until you've really given it absolutely everything because the thought of that is a little bit of a deterrent. Yeah, the way is to say, I'm going to give this absolutely everything and then I'll think about plan B, which if you had multiple fails, might wind you up with nowhere to go. Mm. But like all good anaesthetists, I had a plan A and a plan B. I could imagine that as you're going into your second and then into your third attempt, it could have been quite stressful. The anxiety levels were rising. Oh, yeah. No, it was – the anxiety levels were massive. I have no doubt about that. It was a very stressful time. The added interesting thing for me is I also have type 1 diabetes. There's nothing like a bit of stress to push up your blood sugar because my big fear was always having a low blood sugar. So I think I probably did these exams with the blood sugar about 12 to 15 just to make sure, A, because of the stress and B, because of my concern about inadvertently being hypoglycemic during my exam. But in reality, my diabetes didn't have a major role in anything, but it was just one more factor. Apart from taking that circuit breaker in the Northern Territory, which sounds beautiful, and I miss the Northern Territory immensely. What else did you look at doing to manage that anxiety? So that was in the days before we had kids. And you know, our favourite activity has been bushwalks and bike riding and things like that. I mean, my wife was working full-time. I had my full-time clinical roles, junior registrar rosters, which can be a little bit tough, particularly back in the 90s. I always think about this for our trainees. They've got full-time jobs and they've got to study for these exams. And you often need to remind people that this is the lifestyle of a registrar, of a lot of expectation and the the personal stresses of the exams as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was nothing else specific that I can remember, but I think we just did fun things at the weekend. Walking and exercise, I think they're two really important things that people talk about. Walking's good because you can just reflect 
I used to think that this idea of reflection and everything was a bit of a joke, but I've changed my mind. And I think in reality, that was what I was doing years ago. I would walk and talk and think it through a bit. You mentioned also about being a junior registrar at the time. And I think that's something that people find really hard to reconcile is on the one hand, they're trying to pass this hurdle which they can't get through. But then on the other hand, they're being told that they're clinically very good and they're given more responsibility at work, especially if you're moving from first year into second year of your training Mm. and you start taking on more complex cases, doing more things by yourself after hours. How did that sit with you at the time? I think having confidence in your clinical work makes it easier, particularly if you really enjoy the clinical work. So I think I was you know, a reasonably good registrar combined with very much enjoying the work and that makes it a lot easier. I think if you're doing a job that you hated, it would be much harder. And I know that some trainees, you get a pretty rugged time in some places and I think that would be extremely difficult for them. Mm, true, that is true. And hopefully those trainees in that situation have someone like a supervisor of training that they can go to. I think it's incredibly important and it'd be interesting to look at in 2022 what resources supervisors can offer candidates, which I think is much more extensive than in the past. And I'm also aware that the college is much more forthcoming with feedback to try and help trainees. The interesting thing is then going on to be an examiner myself and then having my own experience. And one of the things I always say to candidates, well, not during the exams, but in trial exams, is the examiners are there to help you demonstrate what you know. They're not there to trick you. Mm. The other thing I think I'd say about exams is I think as a profession, we do need appropriate standards. I mean, yes, you could argue that the multi-choice is multi-guess, but I think the examiners work incredibly hard to have valid exams around a legitimate curriculum that covers important parts of what we do. And the ability to pass that exam, to my mind, is a reasonable hurdle. You talked about feedback, which I've heard has improved a lot. Did you get much feedback at the time from the college? No. In those days, there was nothing. I'm glad the feedback has improved immensely. It was zero before, so there's only one way to go from there. You've really covered all the things that I wanted to mention. But Is there anything else that you would like to say to people, particularly those coming into exams for the second or subsequent times? The main thing is learning how to structure your thinking. Yes, you need the knowledge, but yes, you need to know how to convey that to examiners and just practice, practice, practice. But what you're practicing is getting your ability to think in a structured way right every time. And it's a very strong analogy is like advanced life support. You've got a structured way of thinking that you can implement in a very stressful situation. You, know, you mentioned the stress and everything of the exams. It is incredibly stressful. And in fact, as an examiner, you've never shaken as many sweaty hands. And the interesting thing is you really do feel for the candidates. It is really quite disturbing as an examiner to see these people sitting there feeling scared. Mm-hmm. And it's such a big deal for them. And you know, having been there a couple of times myself, in the Vivas in particular, I really do feel for them. I guess I'd further emphasize that The examiners are really dedicated to helping trainees pass. But I think there is also this issue, and and it's something we can probably do better, is to try and help those who perhaps anaesthesia isn't for them. You don't want to feel that someone's got into a rut. They're not really doing what they want to do, but they don't really want to have to change streams. And I think we need to get better in supporting people who want to change what they want to do. In fact, I'm working with someone now who's decided they would rather be a statistician. And that's perfectly fine. And that person's going down the right route to do that. So I think that's the other thing is that for me, although I was a tough geek, I knew desperately what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an anaesthetist and it really genuinely interested me. I didn't really want to do anything else. And I think that uh, of the many things that helped me keep going and succeed, that that was one of the most important ones. 
Agreed. It's not just anesthesia, but I've met people in other specialties mm. who are in that rut, who want to change, but I feel like they're too far down it. I yeah. did meet an anesthetic fellow that I worked with once, actually, who then mm. went off and retrained as an ENT surgeon. Okay. Well, you could actually see kind of quite relates. And then there's that really tough group, the people who desperately want to be anesthetists, but don't make it through the exam process and the support that we can continue to offer them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the group that are doing it the toughest. You know, the ones who really want to be anesthetists but just can't get through the exams. And I think it would be tried to say there's always a way. For some people, there'll never be a way. And it might just be that the sheer stress of the exams, there's no way they can get around that. Because, I mean, the reality is if you've got into anesthesia training, you've performed well as a medical student, performed well as a junior doctor, you're facing these tough exams for the first time and for various reasons, you just find you can't get through the exams. They're the people I really feel for. And we need to have a structured way of supporting them. An analogy now is actually people doing PhDs and there just being no research money, no research workforce. So they've, they've done an undergraduate degree, they've done a PhD in an area they're really interested in. And there's just nothing, there's no work available in their area of interest, which has really sort of been the centre of their life for the last three years. Mm-hmm. I would hope that, that Ansgar, if you like me wearing my vice president's hat, working out how to support people who perhaps want to make difficult decisions in life as trainees are struggling for different reasons and how we as a college help our trainees. Well, that is a lovely positive note to end it on, that the college is listed in the interest of trainees. Well, I, I would also say that when I look across my time, I think the college has come a long way in how the college itself views trainees and the support. I mean, when I think back to the mid-90s, you did very much feel like you were almost a, an annoyance if you're a sort of slightly struggling trainee. And I think that has completely gone and we're in a much more positive place. Great. That's good to hear. Well, look forward to seeing your good work as Vice President and good luck with the rest of your path in that. You'll have an even more impressive email signature. (laughs) But no, thank you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for your very candid thoughts. Mm. And I hope at least it helps some people get through what might be a really challenging time in their life. Yeah. Thanks, Susie. Well, a huge thanks again, Dave, for sharing your experiences with me. I hope you enjoyed having that candid insight as much as I enjoyed having that conversation. I did mention at the start that in chatting with others who've had a similar experience of not passing exams, some common themes emerged. Some of these experiences Dave also had. So the first one was that most people felt it was important to recognise that finding out that you haven't passed an exam can be a very upsetting time and a time of great uncertainty. Some people went through what felt like the stages of grief, anger, denial, bargaining, depression. Eventually, most people, like Dave, came to accept what had happened and moved on with planning for the next exam. Ultimately, this acceptance is what is required to move forward. But don't be surprised if one of those feelings of anger, denial, depression or bargaining come back at random times. Despite it being described as the stages of grief, it doesn't mean that you go through them in a sequential and linear fashion. Any of those emotions can come back at random times. And remember, the exam process does not mean that you are a failure as a person or a bad anaesthetic trainee. It only means, as Dave says, that you didn't meet the expected standard on the day. The next step to consider is getting help, getting feedback and to reflect. See this as an opportunity to seek the help of colleagues, friends, family or professional help. Build your support team. When you're ready, seek feedback from the college, your supervisor of training. Use this information to reflect and plan. What will you do differently next time? 
I want to point out here that a lot of high performers use coaches in their day-to-day life without having to have a hurdle like an exam. Even those who are not high performers get coaches. For example, if you want to get better at tennis, what do you do? Get tennis lessons. You might want to ask someone who has recently sat the exam or passed examiners to coach you. A really good opportunity to get some of that coaching is to come to some of the ASA Practice Fiverr sessions. You can find out more about them by visiting the events page on the ASA website. Another example is you might have identified that you want to sound more confident in the Viva, so you could have a few sessions with a voice or a drama coach. There are a lot of options. If sounding confident when you're speaking is something you are curious about, then I encourage you to come to some of our communication workshops. These workshops are hosted by communication coach, Dr. Andrea Wojnicki, who I chat with in episode 60, that's six zero of this podcast, Australian Anesthesia. During these workshops and in the podcast, we discuss some tips on how to tackle, as she calls it, the shot of adrenaline that can inhibit your performance in the moment. Otherwise, again, I recommend you check the ASA events page for the next workshop, and I'll put a link to that in the episode notes so that you don't have to go searching for it. Remember, these workshops, like the Practice Fivers, are complimentary. That's right, free for ASA members. Okay, the final point is to actively look at how you're managing stress. As Dave mentions, exercise and walking are two really good ways to do this. Mindfulness can also be very effective. And that reminds me, we also have mindfulness sessions that are organized through the ASA. Check out the events page for more details. Sports psychologists can also be really helpful here. Remember though, that at the end of the day, if you feel that this is getting too much for you, you can always change your mind. You can opt to delay and go for a later exam sitting. Or you can even chart a different path for achieving your career goals. There are always options. Now, this bit is really hard to talk about. Some people I spoke with did not even want to entertain the thought of changing careers. The idea of becoming an anaesthetist and being told that they would get through the exam is what kept them going. Others I spoke with always had another career option in the back of their mind. So basically, my takeaway is that we are all wired a bit differently. If you are just a bit curious, then I invite you to listen to episode 32 of this podcast, that's 3-2, where I talk with Dr. Lisa Murphy, who left anaesthesia as a trainee and at the time of our conversation was doing very well as Executive Director of the Stroke Foundation. Just to clarify as well that she did not leave anaesthesia because of her exam results. There were other circumstances in her life that led to her career change, which we discuss in that podcast. So there's always lots of people around. There's lots of people that you can talk with. And if you are feeling like it is getting too much, I will put some links in the show notes. You can also reach out to us here at the ASA. We're always keen to support members of our anesthesia community, whether you're just starting out or heading into retirement. In the meantime, good luck with your studies and I hope you're staying safe and well out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa at asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs> <laughs>